Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of Africa Uprising, Popular Protest and Political Change, published by Zed Books, 2015. The author is Zachariah Mompili. He's the co-author along with Adam Branch. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with Zachariah today. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, my name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure of talking to the author of Africa Uprising, Popular Protest and Political Change. Zachariah Mumpili is the co-author, along with Adam Branch of the book. Zachariah, how are you doing today? Very well. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing the book with us. Um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and also your co-author. Sure. Uh, currently, I'm a associate professor of political science at Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, New York. I'm also the director of the Africana Studies program. And much of the work for this book was done while I was a visiting a faculty member on a Fulbright grant at the University of Dar es Salaam. Uh, my co-author, Adam Branch, uh, for many years worked at the Makarere Institute for Social Research uh, in Kampala, and he wrote most of his book while he was there. Uh, he was also a professor at San Diego State University and is joining Cambridge University in the fall uh, as a as a as a lecturer in African studies. Yeah, well, Adam's not with us today, but congratulations go out to him. And um, the two of you have produced such an interesting and timely book, um, timely in so many ways, but also historical. And I've been looking forward to talking to you about this. So uh, let's sort of start with some of the sort of the premise what 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 begins the book, which is. You know, much of this Arab Spring took place in Africa. Um, what was wrong with treating this as distinct from the politics occurring across the rest of the continent? Talk a little bit about sort of the framing of this and its relationship to these other events that were going on that seemed to be disconnected from the larger continent. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a very important question and, and, a, and a sort of strange reaction, perhaps not unsurprising, um, but nonetheless problematic for a variety of reasons. And, you know, for I think both of us, we were happened to be based in African universities uh, shortly after the Arab Spring. So I arrived in Tanzania in, in, in 2012 and Adam had been in Kampala uh, for several years by that point. And, you know, looking around in the region and more broadly across the continent, you know, it was impossible not to notice the the sheer number of, of protests that seemed to be unfolding in, in a variety of different countries, in Malawi, in uh, in Senegal, as well as, of course, the more noted uh, revolutions that unfolded in, in North Africa. And around this time, when we first started talking about the project, it was a, a very common tendency to write these sort of think pieces about when Africa would get its own Arab Spring. Right? I think that's actually the title of one of the pieces that appeared in, in the New York Times. Uh, and to us, it just seemed like the entire phrasing around the question uh, was was incorrect, right? That that these things were actually happening, but for a variety of reasons, were not the attention was not being paid to uh, these what we thought were were seminal political events unfolding across the continent, uh, events that had clear linkages to to events that unfolded in, in North Africa and West Asia, 
but that had been completely sort of written out of the Western narrative about political change in the region. Uh, and so that's what really got us started talking about, you know, what it would look like to, to, to do a project like this. Uh, and initially we had considered uh, just a series of individual case studies, but as we looked into it more and more, uh, what we realized is that there was this opportunity to, to make a statement about what we thought was distinctive about African protests and how those distinctive dynamics were shaping the, what we refer to as the ongoing third wave of African protest. So you begin the book by comparing these two luminaries in the study of African politics, the study of politics really in general, Kwame Nkrumah and Frantz Fanon. How did these two uh, view popular op- opposition to colonialism in very different ways? I think it's a hugely important question. I think uh, oftentimes now it's, it's common to sort of take Fanon out of a, out of a history of African you know, debates. Um, and that's a... Unfortunate tendency, I think, because Fanon was very much an African intellectual despite his roots outside of the continent and somebody who took very seriously the political transformations that were unfolding around him. And so if you look at you know, some of the work that Fanon is producing um, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, uh, there's a very strong analysis of, of the types of political transformations that are being brought to bear in places like uh, the Gold Coast or what we now refer to as Ghana where Kwame Nkrumah in 1957 had led the first successful broad popular movement against colonial rule in in what's referred to as sub-Saharan Africa. Um, And so for us, you know, I think by sort of looking at the debates and looking at the ways in which Fanon was urging uh, African leaders and really African peoples uh, to insist on their place at the table, to not accept uh, Nkrumah's vision uh, of, of, a, of a highly centralized, very hierarchical political system as being the fruits of the African independence struggle, uh, we realized that there had been this, this sort of long-standing debate uh, within uh, African political discourse around the nature of protest and more specifically about the nature of who is, to use sort of a Marxist framework, which of course Fanon was operating within, uh, who is the revolutionary class. And I think for, you know, as we sort of looked into Fanon more and as we read more about other authors who have sort of picked up on a Fanonian type analysis, especially after the wave of protests in the 80s and 90s, what we saw very clearly in Fanon uh, was, a, was a direct rebuke of, of an Nkrumahist framework, right? The idea that Nkrumah puts, very, puts at the center of his analysis uh, that, you know, what he referred to as the Veranda Boys, essentially young men in Accra, who participated in a series of seminal riots uh, leading up to the independence movement, um, you know, the, for Nkrumah, these are just social forces that could be plugged into the nationalist cause. Uh, and I think for Fanon, essentially what he's noticing is that in that process through which the actions of these veranda boys uh, are subsumed into a broader nationalist cause, that their politics themselves are being written out. So despite the fact that Fanon and Nkrumah agree that this is a hugely important group of people, uh, the, the critique that Fanon levels against Nkrumah is that, that Nkrumah's emphasis on a nationalist political party being at the forefront of the independence movement necessarily erased the contributions of this population. And so we wanted to see um, you know, if this population is something that we could trace across the, the various waves of African protest and what their role has been in the most current wave of African protest as well. Yeah, and and many listeners will have some level of familiarity with the first two waves of African protest, but but less so the third. 
Uh, would you tell us a little bit about this third wave? What what animated the the protesters of this time period? What time period exactly we're we're talking about? Take us to to the third wave. Sure. You know, in the book, what we 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 document uh, is a series of protests that really start slowly in the mid two thousands uh, and gather pace towards the end of the decade, and really culminating in two thousand eleven, the year, of course, of the famed Arab Spring. And if you look at, at the data that we've, we've gathered for the project, what you see is that rather than uh, protests being concentrated are, are starting in the North African context, in fact, many of these earlier protests that occurred throughout the late 2000s uh, had unfolded in disparate regions across Africa, uh, perhaps even starting as early as 2005 in, in Ethiopia, where you had a, a series of massive protests uh, against uh, in the, the, the stealing of the elections by the, the ruling regime. And then continuing steadily and gaining pace towards the latter part of the decade, uh, and really coming in 2011, where you had not only four North African countries, but a variety of other countries across Africa uh, who, who, who also had very serious and substantive uh, political movements. And so we look at 2011, rather than as sort of the start of this wave, as being its crest. And what we have seen since 2011 is that many protests have continued in different parts of Africa, uh, that this protest wave, even as it is diminishing, uh, hasn't completely disappeared, and that it's still capable of, of producing very substantive political transformations, as we saw perhaps most recently uh, in Burkina Faso, but also I think in, in some ways well, the unfolding crisis in Burundi is emblematic of, of, of this current wave. So, now, so go ahead, now, yeah, I was just going to, uh, sort of a question occurred to me, which was, one of the real themes of, of the commentary about the Arab Spring was the role of technology. Mm-hmm. We really haven't heard very much about that, but, but in, in, the, in the context of, of African protest movements, but on the cover of your book, you have this great image. I wonder maybe if you can describe it, um, because the protester is holding in, in his hands uh, aloft a, a cell phone. Um, would you just talk a little bit about that image um, and, and also... This this piece of the the protest movement that maybe we um, haven't um, taken seriously in the in the African context. Sure, I think you know there's a few things I would say. First, on on the book cover itself, we actually uh, had to go back and forth with our our publisher, who you know Zed Press in the UK, which we loved. Uh, but when we first sent the uh, the book for uh, a cover design, the the designer came back with an image of an African protest uh, from South Africa in the early 2000s. And it was actually a, a protest that, you know, looking closely at the image, was circling around the, the, uh, the debt cancellation movement that unfolded in the late 1990s and, and early 2000s, what was referred to as the Jubilee 2000 protest. And we had to sort of push back against the publisher to say, well, you know, this is certainly an example of African protest, uh, but one that is largely disconnected from the types of, 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 of protests that we are interested in this book, and, and it's, a, it's, it's fundamentally a distinctive wave uh, that is that at its core is, is driven by a different set of politics, not so much as top-down movement emanating out of the UK, but rather something that we think is coming up really from the uh, from the distinct societies in which they are unfolding. And so then they came back to us with this image, which I think much more closely uh, captured the sentiment that we were trying to articulate in this book. And that I think is there's, there's two dimensions to it. One is uh, you know the the fact that it is a young person, clearly a person who's not coming from the upper classes or even the middle classes, uh, who we chose to represent this current wave in uh, of protest. That I think is very important for us in the theoretical discussion, where we make a strong distinction uh, between protest by ordinary people. So, in contrast to the image that they had initially selected for us, which was this Jubilee 2000 protest, 
we thought we wanted a, uh, an image that more accurately captured the, 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 the type of person who was actually act, actively participating in these various movements. And that was uh, oftentimes much more uh, of a person coming from a, a more working class or, or uh, somebody unemployed altogether, so, uh, oftentimes youth, uh, young men in particular have been at the forefront of many of these protests. And when they came back to us with the second cover, it seemed to capture more accurately uh, the type of individual who we have seen consistently at the forefront of these protests, what we refer to as political society in the book. But in other words, people who are not necessarily part of an organized uh, political organization, uh, in other words, they're not a part of this thing that we refer to as civil society in many different contexts. And I think that relates to, to your question about uh, the role of social media and, and how it plays into our book. And I think one of our starting points uh, for this project was to was to question the widespread assumption that we heard very much in the, in the midst of the, uh, the Arab Spring and, and since, of course, uh, that, that these were protests fueled by social media, that, that protests that unfolded in the North African context resulted from their finally getting access to, to, to social media, to Facebook, to Twitter, and other such, uh, um, such, such technological tools. And our, and our, you know, we, we, we were very much in the, in the sort of uh, techno-skepticism camp, uh, since we, we felt that the, the role of such social media had been vastly overstated. Um, and there's a, a number of ways which we try to tackle this question in the book. One is sort of by asking a very basic question about what is the degree uh, of social media usage uh, in many of these countries that have experienced widespread, widespread protests. Uh, for example, if you look at social media or, or Internet penetration in Sudan, uh, which has seen a series of protests since 2011, uh, the highest estimates during this period suggest that less than 10% of the population actually has access to social media or internet-capable uh, phones in Khartoum, uh, and less than 3% on a countrywide basis. And, and, and in many ways, Sudan is actually better off than, than other parts of Africa, uh, where these numbers drop even further. In contrast to sort of the smartphone, social media-fueled protest narrative that took hold in the aftermath of the Arab Spring, uh, we found that, you know, that sort of old, older, more traditional technologies seem to be much more important to the spread of protests. And there are a variety of reasons as to why this is. One, of course, is that, that cell phones uh, and SMS te technology, what, what in the U.S. we refer to as text messages, uh, have far greater prevalence amongst the segment of the population that we were interested in. So if we're talking about the urban underclass, uh, the assumption that they're all using you know, smartphones to access Facebook, of course, is, 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 is a pretty naive one. Uh, but they do often have access to SMS technologies through basic cell phones. And you do find that they are useful in terms of spreading the message about different types of protests. Um, the other part of it, I think, that is more important, perhaps, is that SMS technology is much harder to trace. And so one of the things that we saw, even in cases where you did see a degree of usage of, of a smartphone or, or social media technologies, uh, that many times these technologies are sort of a, a double-sided sword. On, one, on one hand, uh, they do empower activists in the ways that, that their sort of most uh, breathless advocates suggest. suggest. Uh, but on the other hand, they also are equally deployable by regimes interested in crushing protest movements. And so, again, to use the Sudanese example, early on in the student movement around 2011, there was a Facebook page that had been started by one of the groups uh, that eventually drew about 75,000 participants. Now, there's two things I would say about this. First, the vast majority of those participants actually were Sudanese in the diaspora who were looking for ways to, to reconnect to the struggles that they had left behind, um, having 
fled in many cases to to asylum or other uh, other uh, migratory paths out of Sudan to the west. More importantly, though, once the regime got hold of the fact that this Facebook page existed, they simply used the Facebook page to identify who they thought were the key organizers of the protest. And essentially what Facebook provided them was a list of, of dissidents uh, who were participating in trying to organize a mass uprising. And so they merely followed the Facebook trail and were able to use uh, Facebook to crack down on the student protesters in ways that made many of the student protesters in the Sudanese context at least extremely wary uh, of social media as an effective organizing tool. Now, in the book, you have several case studies, some of them that you've alluded to so far. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you chose Nigeria, Uganda, Ethiopia to, to focus your attention towards the end of the book. I think, first and foremost, it was uh, uh, related to our own sort of personal experience and expertise around these particular cases. Uh, Adam, of course, actually was living in Kampala uh, at the time of the 2011 Walk to Work protest uh, and in many ways had tremendous access to those populations uh, during the course of doing the research for this book. Uh, he also spent a considerable amount of time in Ethiopia, and so it became sort of a natural uh, additional case to include in the, in the text. Uh, Ethiopia was also important for us because it was one of the first protests that we, we identified in this current wave of, 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 of protests in Africa. And so being able to include that and sort of showing not only what drove the protests, but also the ways in which the regime has sought to prevent uh, another mass uprising from unfolding uh, became particularly important to us. And I think in many ways, Ethiopia was at the forefront, both in terms of being the first country to experience one of these mass protests in the contemporary period, uh, but also in terms of going the furthest to ensure uh, both through repression, but also through this discourse of development, that another protest movement would not arise uh, again. Uh, the other two cases are, are, are more related to my own personal expertise. Uh, you know, I've, I've studied Sudan and South Sudan uh, for many years, and so I think the Sudanese case was 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 valuable because it is one of these cases that sort of straddles our imagined construction of the Middle East versus Africa. Uh, and I think one of the, you know, one of the key things that we were trying to do in the book is to say that our analysis of Af African protests was not delimited by uh, deserts, uh, by other sort of colonial constructions about what is the real Africa versus the Middle East. And so Sudan provides us sort of an analytical traction because it is certainly a country that is often included into this category of the Middle East. It is predominantly an Arabic speaking country. But it is also a country that is that is uh, in many ways a part of so-called sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and if we could sort of identify you know, common trends that linked Sudan to these broader African trends, we could make a set of claims that the dynamics we're identifying weren't explicitly limited um, to to so-called sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and finally, Nigeria, I think in some ways, you know, I, I spent uh, soon after I finished my undergraduate education, I, I lived in Nigeria for some time during the end of the uh, Abacha administration uh, during the transition to democracy in that country. Uh, and I worked with a civil society group in Nigeria. And that, you know, if you've read the book, and as, as, as hopefully some of our readers will discover, uh, the book is very much concerned with, a, with an analysis of, of what is this thing called African civil society and how does it differ from, from Western constructions or understandings of civil society. And I think for me as a, a sort of young 20-something person in the late 1990s, uh, going to work for a civil society and organizing or organization in Nigeria, in Lagos in particular, 
was extremely eye-opening uh, and, and, and in many ways uh, disillusioning in the sense that I, 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 I still look back at that period and wonder what exactly I was doing uh, working for this human rights organization, what exactly I accomplished more importantly. Uh, and so these cases, I think, you know, came together, you know, not only because they're hugely significant for a variety of reasons that we explore in the book, but also because we felt uh, as outsiders to the African continent that we had uh, meaningful and, 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 and substantive relationships with these countries uh, and, and people within these countries uh, going back in some cases over a decade uh, that allowed us to get uh, to tell the stories uh, in ways that perhaps uh, go much deeper than some of the superficial analyses that floated around in their aftermath. Yeah, and without asking the terribly superficial question, um, do these case studies tell a uniform story of African protest movements, or, or are the variations really what is most important about the, the stories that they tell? That's an important question. I think it's, you know, it gets to the core of what we're trying to do in this book, and that is to say you know, that there is value uh, of thinking of African politics in a comparative lens, uh, using a comparative method. And so we wanted to uh, both make some general claims about the nature of African protests, uh, what we think have been uh, very important to defining African protests since the anti-colonial struggles of the 1940s, uh, but also to recognize that at the end of the day, you know, protest in, in, is sort of the paradigmatic example uh, of contingency in our political life. And uh, obviously, even as we identified all these parallels and similarities between the different cases, uh, they do often have very different trajectories. And that gets to the core of what we're trying to suggest in the book is, is that if we want to understand uh, African protests and if we want to understand the different trajectories that they take, we have to look within the specific protest movement to understand how these various social forces uh, intersect with each other, how they work together at certain points, how they, they, they split apart at varying points, uh, and how they are constantly trying to deal uh, with challenges posed against various protest movements by the regimes that are in power. Right? Uh, so that's the broad sort of theoretical project that we're undertaking. And the value of the case studies for us uh, is that we can actually explore uh, each of these different movements by looking at various social forces that we think are relevant. Uh, of course, civil society, as you've already mentioned, but also political parties, uh, labor unions, uh, religious institutions, and then this broad category, which we think is very central uh, to African protest and what we find to be the defining characteristic of African protest, uh, what we refer to as political society, but which is really just another way of referring to ordinary people, people who are uh, largely excluded um, from participation in the formal political sector. The book uh, that, that you've been hearing about is Africa Uprising, Popular Protest and Political Change, published this year by Zed Press. The authors are Adam Branch and Zachariah Mopili, who we've been, just been talking to. Zachariah, thank you very much for your time today. Absolutely. Happy to be here. <laughs> 